This is another edition of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. It's a privilege and an honor to have General Kip Ward with us. Thank you, General, for being with us. We're going to be talking about Africa. We're going to be talking about security. We're going to talk about development. We're going to talk about his public service career. General Ward, thanks for being here. Uh, my pleasure to be here, Dan. Thanks for inviting me. So, so General Ward, how did you how did you end up in the military? Well, I'm a product of the 70s, uh, and so Vietnam. Ah. And uh, going to college in those days, if you wanted to stay in college, you enrolled in ROTC. Otherwise, you are draft eligible. And so when I entered uh, Morgan State University in 1967, I enrolled in ROTC uh, for two years. And then past that two years, Vietnam's still going on. So in order to uh, stay in school, I enrolled for my final two years uh, at Morgan in ROTC. And I received a scholarship, so I had an active duty obligation upon graduation. I graduated from Morgan, and just prior to graduating, I'd been, I received my commission as a second lieutenant in the regular Army. I was a distinguished military graduate, commissioned in the infantry, and I was assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division. Oh, my word. So you recall in 1971, Nixon stopped sending combat forces to Vietnam. So being an infantry combat officer, I didn't go to Vietnam. I went to Fort Bragg and started jumping out of airplanes. Oh, wow. Uh, and, uh, but with, with, an, with, a, with an obligation of four years, uh, my plan was, okay, well, I'll do my four-year obligation, get out of the Army, and I plan to go to law school. Well, as my wife says, you know, th- that four years that we talked about when we graduated from Morgan turned into four decades oh. of service. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. So, and, so, and so that's how it got started, and that's how the journey uh, continued for four, uh, for four decades over myriad assignments around the world, doing things I never imagined I would be doing at the time I graduated in 1971. So, so General, you had a number of interesting assignments that you, where you intersected between security and development. One of them is you were asked to, to serve as commander of the U.S. Africa Command. How, how did that happen, and what was that like? Were you the first head of the U.S. Africa Command? I was the inaugural commander of the United States Africa Command. And how it happened is a great question. It kind of reminds me of a question I was asked by uh, President uh, George uh, W. Bush when I was nominated, or when I was appointed to be the U.S. Security Coordinator to Israel and the Palestinian Authority. I was was in the Oval Office. We were talking. He looked at me and said, Kip, how did you get selected for this job? (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, I think the culminating piece of myriad assignments that I had prior to standing up AFRICOM led to my being selected to, in fact, stand up the command. I had spent time in Egypt as the chief of our security cooperation office there. It's a big job. Uh, big job, big, big program. I had spent time in Bosnia as the NATO commander of the stabilization force. A big job. Big job. Uh, and I had spent time in Israel as the U.S. security coordinator, uh, working with the Israelis oh, and the Palestinian Authority. Big job. And in each of those assignments, I had been exposed to parts of our government doing things to promote peace other than the Department of Defense, huh. which I was a part of. Okay. In Egypt, working as a part of the country team there in the embassy. Obviously, in Bosnia, working with the European Union predominantly, but at the same time, working very closely with the EU High Commissioner, uh, Patty Ashdown, good friend who recently passed away. Mm, yeah. Sad to hear that. But working closely with him, then obviously working in Israel as well with Jim Wolfenson, uh, who was doing the, some of the economic development pieces as I was doing the security pieces. And so it became very apparent to me that what I did required the support, 
collaboration with, coordination with these other elements of government that working together side by side to bring more stability to a region. When I went to UCOM uh, initially as UCOM's deputy commander, prior to commanding AFRICOM, I also got additional experience in working with our embassies in the various parts of the European continent, but also in that part of Africa that European command had uh, responsibility for. So when the time came to stand up U.S. Africa, Africa Command, with this notion of an interagency construct of sorts, those things weren't new to me, and in fact, I was a champion of that sort of arrangement to ensure that what we were doing was even more relevant, more cohesive, more coordinated in support of, a, in support of our overall national security policy objectives for the United States of America. And, and General, when you when you started, when you were the inaugural commander of the U.S. Africa Command, what were some of the issues that were on the in the inbox? Well, w the big one was to create this interagency command such that one, our interagency partners weren't threatened by our being involved, and not that we were looking to do their work, but we were looking to ensure that what we did, and the term that I would use, at a minimum, do no harm, but where possible, let's add value to this complementary effort that we're trying to undertake. We're all, and I would point to my left shoulder, or maybe it was my right shoulder, I had the U.S. flag, say we're all citizens of the United States of America. And that is so, it's not about the Department of Defense, or, Africa, or AID, or State com Department. Com competing with you, we wanted to support AID, State Department. And so one of the competing things that were prevalent at the time, or how we cause this interagency to receive the command in a way that made sense for all of us, not just for uh, securing DOD objectives, but also for helping to enhance their ability to secure their own agency objectives on behalf of the American people. Obviously, there have been a series of ongoing, let's call them pain points on the African continent. I would assume that you saw a number of conflicts that were even being driven by a variety of issues that were political or they've been driven by issues of lack of jobs or there were sort of some of these these basic kind of the bases of conflict where there, there must sure. have been some of the things that that came up absolutely well obviously we took our basic mission requirements from our national security objectives so sure. the, the things that we were doing in the command were in support of our national security objectives closely coordinate with the department of state Obviously, you know, the political considerations, our policy perspectives were at the center point of what we would do to ensure that we were aligned. And so when you looked at the continent of Africa and the various challenges that were present, but also opportunities. Big opportunities. Present, how could we cause, one, understanding those challenges, what is it should we do as a DOD element to help reduce those challenges, but at the same time, what do we do as a DOD element to help ensure that what we do is synchronized with, is coordinated with, and in fact enhancing what's being done across other parts of our government. So when you look at that space, be it illegal trafficking of drugs, people, weapons, you look at the- Animal, animal parts. Exactly right, right. exactly right. You know, the, the, the hunting, the poaching, and all poaching. those sorts of things. You look at the governance issues that led to instability because of, because of civic space being cut off and, and how that created inconsistency and turmoil in a population. When you look at the economic aspects of what went on with respect to not being able to have a decent 
way of life, living in a decent way, you know, making enough money, earning enough wages such that they could clothe their children and send them to school. A lot of places on the continent, you know, pay for basic education. And so all of these things were there, and the root of instability found its way in many, from many, many, many sources. Food insecurity, land encroachment, all these things were there, as well as some historical tensions, uh, cross-border tensions, uh, tribal issues. So all those factors were at play. Folks who were in power as leaders who, for whatever reason, didn't want to give up that power. And so you didn't have those things with respect to governance working uh, participating in a process such that the government represented the people. We know it most often in the form of elections. But those things, when they weren't working in a way that caused people to feel as if their needs were being satisfied and met or someone was abusing them, led to conflict. And across the continent, North Africa, Southern Africa, East Africa, West Africa, and Central Africa, were all present, from Joseph Kony running through the jungles uh, with the Lord's Resistance Army. In Uganda. To, in Uganda, to what was going on in, uh, uh, in, in Nigeria and in the Sahel uh, with uh, uh, those insurgencies, uh, with, to what was going on in, 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 in North Africa, uh, and obviously in South Africa uh, with respect to issues of governance uh, from what was happening with Mugabe, uh, uh, to also what was going on in other parts of the continent. And so these were all things contributing to tensions, contributing to conflict, contributing to instability. And from the AFRICOM point of view, how could we, as we engaged with our African partners and friends, as we worked with our interagency colleagues, cause what we did to create an environment that helped bring stability to those troubled regions, but as importantly, where stability existed so that it could be maintained and enhanced. And so we faced these things across, the, these challenges across the continent, and we worked every day really, really hard to build relationships, to build a, an attitude amongst our partners that they indeed were responsible for their own security, that we weren't going to be doing it for them, but we were there to support and to help. And that support and help was found in the form of our engagement, our partnering activity, et cetera. Uh, where there were things going on that required some use of, of force, uh, where that was coordinated and, and deemed from a national policy perspective, perspective to be appropriate, then we were, of course, in place to do that as well. How um, – talk about your day-to-day – did, did you have an, an international development attache attached to your command? Yeah. One of the very – unique aspects of the command that thankfully continues today, for me to know what development should be, would be, I needed someone that understood it. Obviously, as a soldier and the command, uh, that's not what we grew up doing. Uh, And so we created the command with the notion that let's bring aboard in our construct developmental experts diplomatic experts. And so we created a construct whereby the command had two deputies. So I had a deputy to the commander for military operations who was a uniformed officer. But I also wanted a, had a deputy to the commander, and during those years we called for civil military activities, which was a ambassador, an ambassador. And, uh, and in addition to that ambassador, 
the senior developmental advisor was also a, a position that we, that we established in order to have someone in the command at a senior position, that when that person spoke, folks paid attention and listened because, firstly, with how we established it, and secondly, I empowered them to do so, or her. And so we did have a senior developmental advisor that was assigned to the command from U.S. Agency for International Development. Who, who had the first um, Civ Mill role as your deputy? That was uh, Ambassador Mary Yates. Okay, and what, what, where is she, what did she do? What did she go on to do afterwards? Uh, when, when, when Mar- now, I met Mary initially. We worked together. She was the uh, foreign policy advisor at UCOM. Oh, right. When I was the deputy commander at right. UCOM prior to standing up AFRICOM. And so she and I had worked together. She knew how I thought because of the relationship. Yep. I knew how she thought. And so when it came time to select this person, for me, she was a natural choice. And, uh, and, and she stayed with, with me and the command for about two years. And she left that position and she came back to Washington. And then she was on the National Security uh, Council oh, wow. uh, as a, uh, a presidential assistant uh, for uh, Africa policy. Wow. That's a, that's a, those are big jobs. Big job. When you think about opportunities in Africa, I, I think about the fact that there is a growing middle class. Mm-hmm. It's urbanizing. Mm-hmm. A number of the 50 or so African countries are full-on democracies. About mm-hmm. 16 of them are full democracies. I'm sure you experienced that, that Africa is a very diverse continent. With, that Oftentimes, I think many Americans, obviously folks who are listening to this podcast aren't going to be in this category, but I think uh, that Africa gets a bad bad media rap sometimes, that oftentimes in the sort of the Western press, it's, it's all bad news all yeah, the time. Yeah. I don't know if what your reaction to that yeah, is. Well, well, certainly that's the reaction that we get a lot. Not the case. I would come back uh, here and speak to groups and talk about Africa as a continent, not a country. I mean, this is a continent comprised of, at that time, 53 independent sovereign nations looking at the continent of Africa and its Indian Ocean island nations, all considered part of the African continent. And in that mix of 53 nations, 850-some dialects, diverse, a great degree of distinction between the subregions and even within the subregions, more distinction. And so you would go to a particular country and you face one dynamic, and to think that you would see that same dynamic even in its neighbor country, let alone in a different region, was something totally taking you down the wrong path. So a lot of differences because of culture, history, language, colonial experiences. Yes. All of that contributed to this rich differences those that you saw on the continent of Africa amongst the various countries. And so when we went to the countries during our engagement and building relationships, we needed to pay attention to that and understand that. To go there and assume that what I faced two days ago in country X, I'm going to be seeing the same dynamic here in country Y, false start. False bad start. Bad start. Bad start. And so we spent a lot of time paying attention to that. We even brought into the command something that was, at the time, very unique, cultural anthropologists to help really? us understand. And, and when I brought that to the front of the what do you want to do that for? I said, well, we need to understand folks that we're dealing with because we go in there with our mindset, our perspective, and try to do them to try, try to have them do things that support our objectives and theirs. From our point of view, we're on we're not, it's not gonna work. shaky ground. It will not work. 
that is fascinating. And tell me about how was was our was our presence was the Afri- was the Africa Command largely a welcome presence on the continent? It was. Now we had to work at that because you may, you may recall back in the early days, two thousand and late six, early two thousand and seven, uh, the the perception was that. We're going to militarize our relationship. Militarize the continent, quote unquote. That's right. Bring in squadrons and battalions and ships and tanks and whatnot. And so we had to do a lot of work to dispel that. And we spent a lot of time, my deputies, other senior members of the staff, as well as our troop formations that we had doing exercises, dispelling this notion that now we are there to militarize the continent. And so uh, initially. the welcome mat wasn't out. The good news is the reception mat was out because we could at least go in and talk about what, what we were going to do. And we followed that up with action. And so I was told on many occasions, uh, this is oh, about 16 months into the command, General, what you said is what we see you doing. And so from that point forward, you know, the, the comp- confidence in what we were doing, the faith in that what we were doing was what we would said we would do, steadily increased to the point where today their command is well-received, but uh, we receive a lot of, of compliments from those who were around at the early, in the early days how hard we worked to create that and to reverse what was never the intent, but as it was perceived to be a militarization of the continent. Let me ask you a couple questions about China, for example. How, when, you were, when you ran the command, was China a presence on the continent? China was present on the continent. And was it a security presence? It was more of a developmental presence. They were, they were pursuing economic interests, their need for resources. They were pursuing that as their main, main goal during my time. In my, in my simplistic way of thinking, I'm a simple guy in, in many ways, and I, I've always thought that China has a transactional relationship with Africa. And what they, yeah. you know, it's, I'm going to be a little bit simplistic here, but it's almost as if they want to stick a giant straw into the continent Stop and sucks, yeah, yeah. yeah, rocks and agriculture and oil and gas and, and forest products, et cetera. And so a lot, the 90% of what drives their engagement in the continent is, is that. But you've seen there, they've just taken a, they have a port in Djibouti, a military right. port, and there's also some, lang- there's some discussion about Kenya as right. well. What, what should, what, how should the U.S. think about this? Well, the Belt and Road piece that the Chinese have put in stuff, they, they want to link Eurasia, the Eurasia exactly Plus. Right. And it's all to satisfy their purposes. From giant the, straws. Think right. of them as giant straws. That's exactly right. right? You know, markets, access to resources, getting resources, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so they clearly have that in mind as their intent. We can't compete directly with that because we don't do business that way. We don't do business that way. You know, we don't go to the continent with suitcases of money and build things that really aren't supportive of helping the people nor the economies and just do it in a very non-transparent way. And right. The that we were, I was that. in Uganda last year. I think it was last year. And there's a giant hydroelectric dam that the Chinese yeah. built and it's got a big crack in it. So the president of the country is not happy about that. And so there's all sorts of issues about transparency and quality you have to wonder if they're following the Marquia Queensberry rules of, <laughs> of contracting and what what right. exactly is transpiring and right. with whom. And, and so there's exactly a little bit right. of that. I mean, That's I think right. there's a lot of that. And so I I do think that – I do think, General, I don't know if you – that we need to – we need to be us 
but we need to be present in the continent economically yeah, and developmentally. Sure. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. I, I, as I said, we can't compete with them. In that way. In that way. Because we, it's not us. It's not us. But what we do do for our role in the continent is to bring activities, markets that are enduring, sustaining, transparent, legitimate, and that make sense for the people and come with a quality that only we bring to that scenario. And if we were there doing that, we would be the partner of choice in those endeavors. Yeah, we should be the partner of choice. We have to show up. We have to show up. Now, you demonstrated that and modeled that by when you were the head of the U.S. Africa Command by showing up, making commitments, and following through on them. We have to be able to do that on the economic and development side as well. Exactly, exactly. What, what – um, how, how should we think about a couple of some of the – let me just go through some of the hot spots. Um, so I'm th- there's a lot of problems in Nigeria right now. Nigeria is a rich country with a lot of capable people. I don't know if it's 200 million people. It's an enormous country. It's going to double in size. About 2050. Why is the – what is the root of that conflict, General? It is rooted from my perspective. And, again, this is yeah. uh, now be- having been, been away from it from a bit. But it's rooted in a couple of things. The land – like many sources of conflict on the continent, rooted in land, access to land, rooted in the ability or maybe inability of the central government to reach the outskirts of its territorial boundaries and borders to cause those people to feel as if their government is also doing things on their behalf, providing security that's adequate, providing security that's legitimate and transparent, such that the people feel safe where they are, which is the responsibility of the state That's to do that. That's government's supposed to do to that. Do that. And, so, and so when you have these things, correct, when you don't have these things, those other negative forces will come into an environment and take advantage of populations and the lack of what should be there to care for its people. So in the case of northern Nigeria, the greater Sahel region, Those are the sorts of things that are going on now. You have environmental factors from food insecurity to problems with water to farmers and shepherders and herders competing for land as we have environmental changes that that, that have taken place. So this dynamic and then is at work in Nigeria uh, uh, still today. Uh, It was present when I was in command, and it's a situation— just continues. One, let me let me just a couple of other hot spots. South Sudan, South Sudan got the United States spent a lot of blood and treasure, a lot of prestige yeah. to get Sudan, South Sudan, its own country. Right. Why? What What the heck happened there? Yeah, wouldn't that be great to fully understand? But oh. it's, it, it's really it, it's it's sad. It's it's just such a catastrophe. It's a catastrophe. Because of what happened in South Sudan, to your point, U.S. invested a lot of treasure in a helping lot of political South Sudan capital. secure its independence from Sudan. And uh, with the conflict that exists, the internal conflict between, between the peoples of South Sudan, the factions, and the inability of the leaders to work together for the common good of the Sudanese, the South Sudanese people has led to where we are today, and it's an absolute shame and catastrophe. It's just, it's so, it's, it breaks my heart. Yeah. Tell me, I was in Eritrea um, 
And did you ever visit Eritrea as uh, Africa man? Because of our policy relationship, I didn't. You know? Yeah, it was very interesting. I looked at the issue of the number, the third largest number of people leaving Africa across the Mediterranean are technically Eritreans. I'll put that in mm-hmm, quotes. Mm-hmm. Well, the way I understand it, this is my simple understanding of this, is that Eritrea's got 4 million people and Ethiopia's got 80 million people. And they fought two wars. Um, the second one makes you want to go full peacenik. They had, they fought over a couple of rocks in a one-horse town and 100,000 people died. And you just want to just want to pull your hair out and say, this is the craziest crazy, thing. Crazy. Shameful, you know, the shameful amount of spilling of blood for, 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 for a, you can't even find it on a map, this right. town and a couple of rocks. Crazy. It's crazy. So because of all of that, Eritrea has a fully militarized society, as you know, General. And so if you're a male in Eritrea and you turn 18, from the age of 18 to 50, you're in theory a conscript of the Eritrean right. army. And I think my guess is after six, year six or year seven, you say, look, I've kind of given at the office. <laughs> and I think I'm, I've done my baby idea. I think I'm going to take off. And so some people leave. In addition, there's been a little bit of a pull factor because UNHCR, which is sort of like the global referee of who gets mm-hmm. to be a refugee and who doesn't, put out a bulletin in 2011 and another one a couple years later saying if a, if, a rev, if an Eritrean knocks on your door and says they're, they're Eritrean, you got to treat them like a refugee according to international law. So there's been a little bit of a pull. Right. Well, as you know, the Horn of Africa is a big place and it's pretty diverse. So every South Sudanese, every Sudanese, every Ethiopian, every Djiboutian, every Somali, none of them have sort of this special, you know, exactly. license from, the, you know, from the UNHCR, yeah. but the Eritreans do. So when you show up in Italy, you say, well, I'm Eritrean. So they've got like the equivalent of trivial pursuit questions where they're like, well, who played third base on the Eritrean World Series championship team last year? You know, or right. some pop culture question that only an Eritrean would know. And so you've got this pull factor and this push factor. And so I, my, my thought was if you could get peace and I, again, one last thing, General, but it seems like as if. Because of Black Hawk Down and what happened in Somalia, the United States said, you know what, that was such a a painful experience and Ethiopia is a a pretty reliable partner and we're going to really uh, partner strongly with the Ethiopians in the Horn of Africa. And so if we can, you know, they're going to be our primary partner Mm -hmm. and we're going to do what Mm -hmm. we can to help them on a whole number of things and in return we're going to be a reliable diplomatic partner on a number of different fronts. Right. If I can put it, this is in a simple terms. Right. But the problem with Eritrea, my thought was if you could get peace in our time between Eritrea and Ethiopia, that would kind of be, create a domino effect of a whole bunch of other things that would go into place where you wouldn't need full-on military conscription from the age of 18 to 50 in Eritrea, right. and then people wouldn't cross the Mediterranean. This right. is this is my – sorry for the long – No, 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 no. It's but good. you know what I'm talking about, right? right? So – so they've got this this prime minister in Ethiopia. I can't pronounce Abe. Yeah. He's like the guy we've been waiting for for thirty exactly years. Right. This guy's out of central casting. This is like the this is like the dream prime minister of Ethiopia. He flew to Eritrea a couple of times. A couple of times now. Yeah. We may have peace in our time. Yeah. Eritrea is not the Vienna Boys Choir. This is it's kind of run by sort of a it's a fairly authoritarian place. But frankly, most of the Horn of African government, as far as I can tell, are fairly authoritarian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Seems like Eritrea, if we could, if they could get peace in their time, couldn't we? I mean, 
I just look at the strategic location of Eritrea and think to myself, they got two ports. Right. They're 20 miles from the from across the Red Sea from the the Saudi Arabia. They've got 700 kilometers of, of coastline. Um, heck, they're like you know a hop, skip, and a jump from Israel from the North Point. I mean, it's just right. it's strategically located. We had a CIA listening base that's in the public domain from the 40s to the 70s when Eritrea was part of Ethiopia. Okay, so so. You know, I keep thinking that if there was peace in our time, we could, we could. This would be a time to cut a deal with the Eritreans and get a military base on there. What do you? What's your reaction to that? Well, firstly, uh, I absolutely concur. You know, with the prime minister of, of Ethiopia coming in and reaching out, and that's a wonderful, wonderful development, and I am excited about it. I think it has all kinds of positive potential for the larger for horn, good for the horn, yep, for the entire for the continent, it's continent to be Th- sure. This guy is this sure. guy is a big deal. This to is a, this sure. and this person's going to be a big positive change agent. Let's just hope he doesn't get hurt. Right, I worry about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, well so as Eritrea continues its normalized relationship with Ethiopia and vice versa, as Eritrea continues to do things that its people see. Are supporting their interests. Interests, yeah. The propensity to leave, even with the current government, will be reduced. And the thing that I see as so critical, meaning young people leaving, as we we're talking exactly about, right, right. Is such that the in-place power doesn't feel that it's threatened as time moves on, and that's where we have to be careful. That the Ethiopians aren't going to march on Asmara tomorrow. Exactly right. So that will, I think, produce an environment that over time, it won't happen overnight, but over time will lead to a more stable horn where Eritrea, as a stabilizing part of that country, of that of the continent, because he is at peace with his neighbors, right. in particular Ethiopia, you know, Djibouti is already, that's, yeah. that's okay. So that will create, in my mind's eye, a scenario that is in our national interest to continue to promote and reinforce. In 1997, I believe it was, I was the assistant division commander in the 82nd Airborne Division at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I hosted a visit uh, to Fort Bragg of Eritreans and Ethiopians mm. to visit the 82nd Airborne Division. and uh, A year before their war. A year before their war. And this was Oh, my a, word. This was Eritrean military, Ethiopian military. Correct. Together oh as word. partners and Uh-oh. together and just uh, it was the type of thing that you say, hey, these are the sort of coalitions that, that we make need. sense, that we need to help anchor stability in critical parts of the world. Yeah. If, the, if, you could, if those guys could get together, it's good for the United States. It's in our interest. To be sure. It's in their interest. It's our interest. Exactly right. Let me just close with the following question. So civ-military relations. So you've spent, in the last part, later part of your career, you really spent a lot. You've been very active with the U.S. Global Leadership Campaign. Thank you for that. It's very important in my mind to have generals of your reputation and your your career trajectory involved in the U.S. Global Leadership Campaign because it's far more credible when generals talk about this stuff than the than the hippies. Sure. When a senior military person says it's important, it really has a lot of credibility, as you know, General. So so talk a little bit more about how could we have better civ-mil relations because it seems to me you talked a little bit about it earlier in the conversation. How should we be thinking about relations between the Defense Department and AID or the Defense Department and the State Department? How should we think about those? Yeah, we, we've got to start with having increased understanding of the mission that each of us has 
so that we aren't scared by it. It's not something that we get frightened of or stay away from. And so the relationships that need to be in place, like in anything else, need to be in place. You have to have a cadre of, of folk. So Ambassador Yates knew you and you trusted each That's other. That's right. You build, you build relationships. Across the agencies. Uh, across agencies. And that you, matters. That matters. You, you, you exchange folks. and you, you, We don't do that we, enough we in our system. We don't do that enough in our system. No. You know, a smart person is a smart person, but, but this, their level of understanding is based on where, what, they, where they are, what they where know. They, where they come what from. they've been exposed to. Yeah. Exactly right. And so you, you have increased understanding when you exchange folks, you, inc- you exchange st- staff positions, you bring folks out of one culture to another so they understand, oh, I get this. Oh, this does work. It, my, my, probably one of my early exposures to this was in Somalia. And I was a brigade commander in Somalia. And this is before the Black Hawk. Down. This is before things went kind of south. This is like 91? This was, no, this was in 92 and early 93. Okay. And I went to visit one of my young well, I, I went to visit one, a part of the area that my brigade operated in, yeah. and there was a young sergeant in that area. And so I get there and visiting with my sergeant, how things are going, partner. He said, we're, we're doing fine, but I met with the village chief or the elder, uh, and he was asking me about some agricultural things he wanted to do. These were things that we didn't do. Now, we were there. We had created, okay, it was safe. You know, It was safe. You know, the technicals weren't running through the streets nope. because we were there stopping that now. But now the point was made, well, now what do we do next? Well, the only person there was my young sergeant and his nine members of his squad, and they didn't do that, but they, some rudimentary things they were, they were trying to do. But the trained person that could help that tribal leader do things that would cause more stability in his village, that wasn't, that wasn't happening. And so it became very clear to me that we, when we engage in these sorts of things, we need partners. We need partners who bring to this environment, this setting, things that we don't do but are vitally important to sustaining whatever stability that we have temporarily created. In order to sustain it over time, these other things need to be in place. So that's why the development component is so important. And for us as a nation to get better at that, we need to have these sorts of things that are integrated in operation so that when plans are made and are drawn up, a part of that process includes a discussion and a resourcing of these other things that need to be in place as well. And when you have staff members from Department of Agriculture, Commerce, Treasury, which we had in AFRICOM, in addition to USAID and the Department of State, as well as some of the agencies, then you get a mindset into input into the operation that is reflective of these other perspectives. And when that happens, that whole set is increased and enhanced because it's more effective, because it's a complete set. And it's not just this. That gets done, but then there's a void because nothing else is happening that something else that needs to be happening is present. That's what I saw in, in, in Bosnia, working with the uh, Patty Ashdown in the EU. 
That's what I saw in Israel, uh, working with the, uh, the Palestinian Authority and the Israelis when it came to what I was doing as a security chief and what I saw uh, Jim Wolfenson doing as our economic lead on that side, of, as, as we work together, complementing each other's effort. And that's what I think needs to happen moving forward. And the best way for it to happen is when you have members from those re respective disciplines a part of whatever entity we're talking about. General, this is great. Thank you so much for coming in today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your service. Dan, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, sir. Thanks, General. Thank, thank you. you, sir.